As I was getting ready for this sermon, just thinking about the fact that, you know, it's, it's St. Stephen's Day and all, so it's the day after Christmas, and, and let's, just, let's just say it, Christ, you know, December 25th is not the day Jesus was actually born. Um, so, I know it, I know, I'm sorry, guys, I, you know, like, it's almost as bad as uh, discussing a certain somebody who brings presents at Christmas, you know, and like, you know, like ruining that for you, but no, like, so December 25th was not the day Jesus was born. In fact, it's actually just a very, from what I can read, it's a very pragmatic sort of thing in that it was actually a Roman pagan holiday that everybody had off. It was one of the few days in all of, you know, that all of the Roman Empire actually got the day off. And so it was a day that Christians said, we'll take that and we'll celebrate the birth of Jesus. Like, and, and so they said, you know, that's kind of how it got started. It was actually a day off. So, um, so yeah, there's also some stuff about, you know, how long it is in between Easter and all that. There's, there's other significant things around that. But Anyway, I was thinking, back onto the topic at hand, I was, I was thinking about the day after, the day after my children were born. And I was like thinking about that, like what must it have been like for Mary and Joseph, like first time parents, right? Child is born. And, and I was reflecting back to Alyssa, I was saying, you know, like I was just thinking about, you know, like. When the baby's born, there's that glow, and you're holding the baby, and everything is wonderful. And then there's the next day where you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't even know who I am anymore. What do they need? Are they hungry? Are they, you know, you know like, have they gone poo? Is it both? I don't know. Like, you know, like, here, you take them. I don't know what to do. You know, like, there's that. And, and she immediately, she immediately, without hesitation, said, spoken like a man. It starts immediately for the mom, you know? And I was like, I was like... <laughs> She's like, there's a glow, but they're hungry right away. You know, you have no idea. And I'm like, okay, I have no idea. You know, like, it's true. You know, like, all my kids were kind of born late in the, you know, more in the evening time. And, you know, like, so I hung out for a while. And then it was like, okay, well, good night. You know, and I went home. I didn't endure the evening, you know, of like trying to sleep. And, you know, like, anyway. So I, I apologize to mom, spoken like a man here. You know, like, but, uh, but yeah, like, just thinking about what must it have been like, you know, like, for Mary and Joseph, like the responsibility, you know, like I felt a weight of responsibility as a parent, but what must it have been like for Mary and Joseph, you know, <laughs> like the weight of responsibility. You know, I was like thinking too about that, you know, this, uh, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And you're like, again, spoken like a man um, who has never had any kids. You know, like, you know, like, I'm sorry, Jesus was a human being. Jesus was a human being. He, he wept, he cried. Like he, stubbed his toe and somehow didn't sin. You know, like, it's, it's incredible. You know, like, like, Jesus was a human being. And we spoke about that then in the very first sermon. If you remember all the way back to the first week of Advent, Adam, well, it was, okay, technically the second week, but the first week of Advent in our, in, in church here. And, uh, and we spoke, uh, like, Adam spoke about the humanity of Jesus, that he was born of a virgin. He was born of a woman. He was really a person, a human being like you and me. He needed sleep. He needed food, <laughs> and he needed his mom and dad to take care of all of that for him. Um, you know, like he needed, and even as he got older, he had to take care of those needs, like you and like me. Mentally, he was a human being. Jesus did not come out of the womb preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He came out of the womb screaming and crying, you know? And like, like he had to learn to say the Hebrew words for daddy. And mommy, and grandma, and grandpa. He had to, to learn to read. He had to learn to write. Like he was a human. 
No, Luke, Luke actually mentions that in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. He said, Jesus grew in wisdom. Emotionally, Jesus dealt with all of the things that we deal with. I mean, like from becoming a, you know, hitting puberty, becoming a teenager and all the emotions involved with that to, to like feeling pain, to feeling upset, to feeling anguish and anger. He wept. He was troubled. You know Jesus laughed. You know Jesus had fun. Like he experienced the gamut of emotions that we too experience. And so because of that, Jesus can identify with us. As we get ready to talk about the idea of Emmanuel, which means God with us, it's important that we remember that Jesus was himself a human being. And that's what Adam talked about the very first week. Then Luke spoke about how Jesus was uh, from the line of Abraham and the importance of that. So we went back to Genesis and looked at the promise that God made to Abraham that he, through, through him, all the nations would be blessed and how Jesus' life, Jesus coming and living and showing us what it looks like to be truly human is important. He was truly a blessing who brought the kingdom of God with him. And then in his death and his resurrection, again, he was the blessing to all the nations that all people from every tongue, tribe, and nation could be a part of his kingdom. He was the blessing that was promised to Abraham. And we take part now in that blessing. And so last week then we talked about the idea that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and the things that go along with that, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Watch out. <laughs> I'm more worried about my, all of a sudden I'm like, why am I saying watch out? Why don't I just grab my coffee? Like, well, like <laughs> watch out. Like as if she's going to, you know, like, again, growing in wisdom and stuff, you know, like, um, no, I'm still like, yeah, what's wrong with me? I've got a lot of wisdom to grow in. Um, <laughs> now you guys are like, his poor kids. Um, no, <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, we talked about the idea that Jesus was born in, in Bethlehem, right? And the importance of that, that Jesus was from the line of David, that it was predicted that the Messiah would come from insignificant Bethlehem, that how the house of bread gave birth to the bread of life. Right? Um, you know, I was thinking about, you know, Mary had a bun in the oven. Anyway, we could go, like in, we could go down a weird rabbit hole uh, of uh, the bread. But he was born of David's line and is the promised king. And so we see he is the savior that Abraham was, was you know, that was told about the blessing to all the nations. But he was not just savior. Jesus is king. He's the king from David's line. We think about Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 that we just sang. But if we go to verse 7, verse 7 says, His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. What we see then is that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is King. And often, I think we like the idea of Jesus as Savior because then it means, okay, I'm not totally in trouble, right? You know, okay, like Jesus is the, you know, God is the 
the grandpa up in the sky who lets me get away with everything, right? But then we also see that Jesus is king, which means he's to be obeyed, <laughs> that he's to be feared, that he is, he is the king of kings. And so there's this, this kind of two things here. I think we see, we see Jesus as savior and we see Jesus as king. And then we see Jesus as a human being as well as the king who will rule for all eternity. And it's this, I think, sometimes perplexing idea of the humanity and the deity of Jesus. And so, um, as we get ready, we, we read our passage for today. Um, it was the same passage we had in week one uh, from Matthew, where we find um, this, this promise that the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we're going to unpack that this morning. We're going to talk about that this morning. As I said before, Jesus is the Savior King. That Jesus was fully human. And I, I mentioned to you that he felt like us physically, mentally, emotionally, and outwardly even, he looked like us. You know, like Jesus was not Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Jesus was a normal looking guy living in a very ordinary place. But obviously he was an extraordinary person. But he looked like us. He was ordinary in that way. So ordinary, in fact, that people were like, isn't he Joseph's kid? People, you know, his brothers and sisters were like, Jesus, cool out, you know? Like, come on, man. Like, you, yeah, like, you know, like, and so we find this humanity of Jesus. But at the same time, as we look at this idea of Emmanuel, God with us, we see that Jesus was so much more than purely human. We see Jesus doing things that no human being has ever done since. I don't know anybody who's walked on water. Now there's a story about my grandfather once he was with a tractor near water and it tipped over into the water and somehow he ended up not wet. So he may have, you know, ran across the water somehow. But, you know, I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like humans don't do that. Like humans don't walk across a you know, a raging sea, right? Uh, people don't ordinarily uh, sleep in a horrible storm, and then when, uh, when he gets woken up, just says, like, quiet, and it stills. These kinds of things aren't things that human beings do. We don't have command over nature. We don't have the ability to just rebuke a storm, and it stops. We can't uh, heal disease, right? Like, I'm not saying God doesn't heal people. I'm, I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that if we prayed, God wouldn't necessarily still a storm. But when we look at the way Jesus went about doing things, it's a bit different than the way you and I, or anybody who has ever experienced healing, uh, would probably see it happening. But we see Jesus constantly healing disease. We see Jesus then, if that's not enough, with authority over sin. You think about the man who is paralyzed when Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, I can speak over somebody and say, your sins are forgiven. 
but it is not the same as when Jesus does that. It is not me proclaiming that. Rather, it is what Jesus has done that forgives sins. Only Jesus has the authority to be the one who forgives sin. And finally, we see Jesus holding the keys, the power over death. People do not ordinarily raise from the dead. <laughs> and we see Jesus both raising people from the dead and being ra and raising himself from the dead. Right? God raised him from the dead. We read about these in Matthew 9. We see then both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, that both he was like us in every way, but there was also a sense in which he was not like us. And what we see in Jesus, I think, over and over, Emmanuel, God with us, is we see the kingdom of God breaking in. Oftentimes, I think we think of miracles as just something outside of like the laws of physics or something like that. And, and I'm not sure that that's really a good way to look at miracles. I think when we see G Jesus doing miracles, he's showing us true reality. This is the world the way it was created to be. When Jesus heals somebody from sickness, this is the way the world was created to be, the way it was supposed to be. It was not supposed to be a world full of disease and sickness and sin and all of that. And so when Jesus does these things, he is bringing in a way the kingdom of God to bear on earth, the way the world was always meant to be. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And so I just kind of want to focus on that idea, the word Emmanuel. You know, Matthew gives us the translation, God with us. You know, for those of us who, you know, wouldn't have otherwise known what that meant, right? He gives us that translation, God with us. Sorry, I didn't realize I still had that up. Um, and so let's, let's take a look at that. The first thing I want to look at is this. He was God with us. Now, before you get worried, we'll get to the present tense and the future tense, okay? But we're going to start with, he was God with us. And this is important. You know, I, I think sometimes we think like, oh, if God had just, you know, if God would just tell me what he's like, then, then you know, then I would follow him or, or something like that. Well, here's what we find in the Bible. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. We see no better example of the character of God, of the love of God, of the compassion of God, of being slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and truth. We see it exemplified in Jesus. If we want to know God, look to Jesus. Jesus came and he showed us what it looks like to be human, but he also over and over revealed and exemplified for us the character of God, who God is. In John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, John says, So the Word became human, or the Word became flesh, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we, see, we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Now, that's a New Living Translation, made his home among us. Yours might say dwelt among us. But here's the fun thing. 
The word underneath there is tabernacle. He came and he tabernacled among us. Now, if you know anything about the tabernacle, the tabernacle was a, was a big fancy tent. And the Israelites carried this big fancy tent around with them, and they didn't do it just for fun. They did it because that's where God's presence dwelt. God was there in a special way among them in the tabernacle, that God was with them in the tabernacle. And so John uses this word and he says, the word became flesh. The word became human and tabernacled among us. It was God's presence again in the world. You see, there's actually this interesting, if you look at history, if you read some Jewish history, what you find is that they had the temple, yet they weren't quite sure that God's presence ever really came back there. You see, God's presence, right, once had dwelt in the temple. After they got, you know, they were able to get, you know, take down the tent and build a permanent building, right, in, in Jerusalem, Solomon builds this glorious temple, and God's presence comes down in this powerful way, and everybody experiences it. Everybody just kind of takes a step back and goes, whoa, what did we just see happen? You know, like, I mean, it's this monumental moment where God's presence comes into the temple. And when you read intertestamental Jewish literature, what you find is they're not so sure that God ever came back to the temple in that same way. They didn't have that moment, that experience of God coming into the temple and just, you know. In fact, they look kind of cynically, some of them at the temple. Because they knew the guy who had built it, who had been building it, didn't really care. And so I think it's even more profound, the words that John uses and says, you've been waiting for the Shekinah glory of the Lord, for the Lord's glory to come back into your midst. Here he is. He came and he tabernacled among us. God's presence was again in the world, was again among his people. And so we see that God was with us. And as we read in the scriptures, we see then how Jesus was with his people. The, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But does that mean it's, it's over? It's done? Like, you know, that was then, this is now? No. We see that he is still God with us. What's interesting is if we carry this picture of tabernacle or of temple of God's, the place where God dwells, and we carry it forward into the letters of the New Testament, we come across the Apostle Paul. And Paul is writing some interesting stuff in 1 Corinthians, right? He's writing to a church that has, uh, let's just say they've gone wild, right? They're kind of just like, they are doing their own thing in a way we would not be, okay, at least I hope none of us would be okay with right? They have gotten completely off track. And Paul doesn't, remind them, doesn't write them to say, well, you're not actually Christians. He writes them to say, fellow Christians, stop it. What are you doing? Like, we've got some problems to fix. And one of the things he twice in the letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, or sorry, 3 and chapter 6, makes two references to the temple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, 
Now, the context of that is he's talking about some really terrible, icky stuff that's going on in, in their church that people are doing and people are participating in. And he reminds them and he says, listen, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the singular, speaking of you, of me, of each one of those people in Corinth that were doing all kinds of despicable things, he says, remember, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if we think back to our Acts series, right, what, what, like the Holy Spirit was for everybody, right? We read that in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes on to people when they repent and believe and follow Jesus. They're baptized, right? The Holy Spirit comes on them in powerful ways and God is using the church, like showing the glory of the Lord all over Jerusalem and that spreads to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? Like God's presence now dwells in you and me. Jesus is with us in a very real and tangible way still, working through us that, that God, through his Holy Spirit, is still tabernacling among us. But I don't want to just talk about it in the individual level, because Paul doesn't just talk about it in the individual level. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he uses it in a plural way. He might say, ye are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You guys, where I'm from, y'all, where some of you are from, right? Ye for other people, right? You know, like that plural. And that's always the problem when, we, when we're reading the Bible and they translate it you. <laughs> because we never know, is it plural? Is it singular? You know, because like plural, okay? First Corinthians 3. You guys, ye, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you realize, he says, that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you. And so I think sometimes we, we think like, oh, I can just be a Christian all on my own. I can do my own thing, right? I mean, hey, the Spirit of God lives in me. I, you know, but, but I think we're missing something. I think Paul here is hinting, like, if we're not part of a church, and I realize I'm speaking to the choir here, like, you know, we're all here, you know, like, you know, like, and, uh, and, you know, like, even there, very regularly here, um, like, but the church is important. It's a place where the Spirit uniquely dwells. That there is something about a group of tabernacles gathering together that makes like the ultimate tabernacle or something where God's presence should be beaming out of this place. Like, you know, like that as we leave and as we go, we encourage one another. Luke was talking about that, you know, even in the introduction this morning as he was welcoming everybody. This idea that there is something uniquely powerful about a group of people who have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling inside of them. There is something uniquely powerful that mediates God's presence to the world because God is with us. He is with us individually. He is with us as a group. That that is, uh, that promise of Emmanuel, God with us, is not just God was with us, but God is with us. And finally, you could probably predictably assume that I'm going to say, <laughs> God will be with us. People like to talk about the idea that, that God, that's, that right now we live in the already but not yet. Okay? And what that means is we live in that in-between time. What Paul actually refers to as the end times. Right? We live in the end times. And this is not just the sort of Tim LaHaye left behind sort of thing. 
No, this is like, ever since like Jesus ascended up into heaven, right? We've been living in the end times. Like it started then and the end times will come to an end at the end, right? Like we live in that in-between time between Jesus ascending into heaven and taking his throne until the time when then Jesus returns and he is with us in real bodily form again, judging the world, setting things right, and ruling as the king over all creation. And in this already but not yet time, it's like if you think about it this way, right? If we think back to World War II, D-Day, June 6, 1944, I'll never, I'll never forget because this is my birthday. Not 1944, but June 6th, right? You know? <clears throat> right? There was a decisive battle that happened. June 6, 1944, the Allies invaded France, invaded Normandy, or liberated Nor uh, a part of France, and began the liberation of Europe. And at that point, when they won that battle, it was pretty much just Germany retreating and retreating and retreating. But they were still a good ways away from the end of the war. However, it was pretty inevitable, <laughs> right? At that point, that was a blow, a death blow to the Third Reich that they were never going to recover from, okay? Now, we're gonna transpose that, <laughs> or what is it, yeah, transpose? No, Trans whatever it is, like think of, you know, anyway, we're gonna overlay that onto the story of the gospel. It's not perfect, okay? It's not perfect. You, you, you might be already going, well, you didn't think about this in that metaphor, okay? I understand, not perfect, okay? But just as a way to think about it, when Jesus died and was, was, was risen, a death blow was given to the kingdoms of this world. Their time is up. Their time is limited. It's coming to an end. And Jesus promises in the book of Revelation through John, it's going to, it's, and it's, it's going to be ugly. It's going to end. <laughs> Jesus has won. Amen. It's just an inevitable, like it's a, we, we got to wait it out until we finally get, you know, from D-Day to V-E-Day, -day, right? That's, that's where we're at right now. And we live in that, and, but we look forward to the day that Jesus, that God will be with us. In his death and resurrection, he becomes the risen and conquering king who sits on his throne, right? Daniel chapter 7, he becomes the son of man in Daniel chapter 7 as he rises into the clouds, right? When you compare the end of the book of Matthew and the ascension of Jesus with Daniel chapter 7, all of a sudden you go, oh, okay, I didn't see, I didn't realize this. Like, right, they're very similar, probably for good reason, right? That we have this idea of ascending the clouds of heaven and sitting on the throne, the son of man on the throne, and he'll return to judge the world and set all things right. Like, there is a bunch of texts in Revelation that I could read, right, that, that all paint this picture for us, that help us to imagine the idea that even though sometimes it's hard to see, Jesus is going to win. He has won. It's like, it's just a matter of time before it's all over and done with. But in Revelation chapter 7, we read, For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will return. Emmanuel will return and set all things 
right? Where all of those miracles he did will no longer be abnormal, but they will be the normal. The way Jesus sets things right will be the normal way. Jesus will forever be on his throne. And he will judge the injustices of this world, the things that we look at and say, that is pure evil, Jesus will set right. He was God with us. He is God with us. He will be God with us. And so I think it's important for us to be reminded of those things. And so as we kind of uh, transition, I think, from maybe more of like head stuff, (laughs) I want us to start thinking about this. We were created for relationship with God. We were created to live with Emmanuel. We were created not just for God with us, but for us with God. (laughs) If that makes some sense there, maybe. Um, That it's not a one-way thing. God has come to be with us, but that's it. He wants us to be with him. Like, you know, like he doesn't want to just hang out in the corner over here where the rest of us do our own thing over there. It's like, no, like he wants us to come like to him. We were created for relationship with God. Jesus is the way to God and the wisdom of God. He became the way to God, how we are reconciled to God and the wisdom of God, how we see what it looks like to live a truly human life, a wise life. And if you want to know, hear more about that again, go back to Luke's sermon. He talked about that idea that Jesus shows us in his life how to truly live. And it's one of those, look, I'm just going to throw this out there. If your view of what Jesus has done for you does not need his life, you probably have a, a very narrow, skewed view of what Jesus has come to do. His 33 years on life, in life, matter. Okay, Romans chapter 5 talks about that. You can go, like, that's one place I can just think of off the top of my head that tells us that Jesus is 30, you know, because otherwise, why not just let Herod kill him and then it's over with, right? You know, like, anyway, I'm going on the, we'll stop. I'll keep going. Anyway, you want to talk about that after church? We can talk about that after church. Um, I know myself too well. This, that would turn into another 20-minute tangent. Um, yeah. So he becomes the way then we see We receive salvation and the way of wisdom. Yet, I think the reality is is that instead of giving our lives to him, like it should be like, wow, if Jesus is really all of that, I should should give my life to him. That should be the obvious, like, you know, no-brainer, okay. You know, like, but yet, I think the reality, even for those of us who've been Christians for a very long time, the reality is so often we give ourselves to other things. And maybe I I hope the longer I'm a Christian, the less I catch myself doing that, you know? But like, isn't that like, do you guys feel that tension sometimes? Like that, like that which I want to do, I do not do. And that which I do want to do, I don't do. You know, like that sort of like, you know, and and we could debate what Paul exactly is talking about in Romans chapter seven. but, But look, I think we do feel that tension. 
often. We search for our peace in other places. We make created things into ultimate things, thinking they'll give us what what we truly are searching for, what we're truly longing for. And you know what those things are for you, what you're looking to, to fill you. You know what they are. You can pinpoint them. I know you can. Like if you're self-critical for even five minutes, you know. And maybe that's the problem. We're going to talk about sitting alone with our thoughts. Maybe that's why we don't like to do that. We don't want to come face to face with those things because we want to keep doing what we want to do and we want to live in our misery. Like we're happy with like the misery we know rather than, you know, that things could be different and better. Like I'd rather just sit in the misery I know. Thank you very much. Like we do that as human beings often. We make created things into ultimate things, thinking they'll satisfy, and still we thirst. It's never enough. Again, I don't probably need to go into too much. You know this. You have it from, it's like the Christmas gifts, right? All of a sudden, everything is the greatest thing in the world on Christmas. You know, you get what you've been dreaming of on Christmas. And then like two weeks later, you're kind of like, when's my birthday? <laughs> I don't know. Like, that was me as a kid. The nice thing about having a June birthday is you're always six months from presents, right? You know, like, that would be like, that was like my look as a kid. You know, I'm like, I'm always only six months away, right? Because after a while, you're just kind of like, meh. You know, like, and yet, we do that with, like, areas of our lives, too. Like, we just think, like, that's going to be it. That's going to be the thing once I have that. And yet, we still thirst. Because what we realize really quickly is, Well, it wasn't that great after all. We long for more. We long for deeper. We long for the substantial, and yet we continually trade it for other things. Like, think about being on a jet ski, right? You see those people like on a jet ski, they skim across the water. That's how most of us live our lives on a daily basis. We just skim across the water what we don't realize is there's like a Spanish galleon full of gold underneath of us. If we would just dive down and get it. We contentedly just drive across on our jet ski. And hey, jet skis are fun. But there's something so much better underneath. If we would just dive down and look for it. Right? The treasure in a field that Jesus talks about. In Psalm 42, David has this beautiful, Psalm 42, verse 1. And this has like just become one of, like, I think it's just such a powerful, poetic word from the Lord. As the deer pants or longs for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. So my soul thirsts for you. So my soul longs for you. And I I love that imagery. And even on its own, we can look at that, dwell on it, and be like, yeah, I feel that. You know, like, as I I go about, like, walking the earth, I feel this longing inside me, a desire for something more. And what he's saying there is, like, as the deer pants for water, is thirsty and finds a stream and laps at it, so my soul thirsts for, for you. Here's the cool thing about the Hebrew word for soul. It's nephesh. And it's also translated throughout the Bible as throat. It can be either one, soul, throat, just depends on the context, how people translate it. But when you come to poetry, now all of a sudden you go, there's a beautiful double meaning there. As the deer pants for water, so my throat 
thirst for you. It's that idea of like feeling. I don't know if you've ever been there where you're just like, I am so thirsty. Like if I don't have a drink right now, like I'm just going to die. <laughs> or, or even there, you know, like, I don't know. I had this moment where I was like eating kind of like dry stuffing and I was like, you know, you're like, you know, all of a sudden, like your throat, like, like, oh, like, right? It's that idea of like, as the deer pants, what is my soul thirst for you? And I think David right there through, you know, I think inspired by the Holy Spirit is pressing in on something we all feel, we all experience. We're just not quite sure what, what that thirsty feeling really means because we've been sold so many other things. That in the marketplace of ideas, we just kind of look at God as like another thing in the marketplace that we can take or leave an accessory to show everybody who I really am, you know, like to accessorize with my life. When it's like, no, what we've been longing for, that thirst inside of us is only satisfied in Jesus, the living water. As Augustine famously has said in the very beginning of his confessions that he, he writes, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. There is profound truth in that statement. A lot of people may have some quibbles here and there with Augustine, but that right there, like, that's, that's cool. Like, yeah, I, I, we experience that. We feel that. We know that. I think it's famous for a reason. And I think it sits nicely with, as the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you. Our hearts will be restless. Our throats will be thirsty until we come to Emmanuel, God with us. Even though we've tasted the living water, I think for, for many of us, though we've tasted what good water, fresh, wonderful water tastes like. We still keep drinking seawater thinking it's going to quench our thirst. I'm sure, Dulies, you just went for a dip yesterday. If you got, you know, you said the seas were rough. Seawater does not quench your thirst. It's salty and not particularly nice. You know, like, it's great to swim in, not great to drink, right? Um, although yesterday it may not have been so great to swim in. <clears throat> so what do we do? We come and drink the living water and thirst no more, right? Like, that's what we should do, right? Easy answer. Okay, sermon done. Well, okay, how do we do that? See, that's always the easy part. Like, like this next part, that's the hard part. Everything that came before, that's the easy part to say, yeah, here's what we should do. Okay, well, how do we do it? How do we get there? Being like Jesus is unfruitful and impossible. We'll finish that now if we do not know Jesus. So it'd be really easy to say, hey, here's you know, a bunch of things that you need to be doing right now. Go do this, do that. But if you don't know Jesus, forget it. We talked about this once in community group. It's like a Christmas tree, right? It's like putting ornaments on a Christmas tree. It looks beautiful, but it's dead. Like, you know what, my Christmas tree, like my kids keep running into it and like I just keep waiting for every single needle to just be off the tree. I was actually like, you know, like, we, you know, my Hoover is going to literally just Hoover up an entire Christmas tree over like a six week period, right? But if that doesn't happen, what's going to happen then is I'm going to carry that Christmas tree out of my house eventually, and it's going to make a mess all over my house. The rest of the needles will fall off. And by the time I get out of my hallway, I will have a couple of sticks, right? <laughs> because it's dead. 
it's a dead tree. It looks, it may look beautiful. It's been decorated with ornaments from my childhood. My kids have made, you know, like it's been decorated with all these ornaments that at least for me, I find beautiful, you know, like, but like it's dead. And that's what happens. If we just try and go about like, you know what? I'm just going to go my own way. I'm going to make my own fruit. You know, guess what? That's what's going to happen. We're going to hang a bunch of ornaments on the tree, but at the end of the day, all of our needles are going to fall all over the floor because we're dead. It starts with knowing Jesus and experiencing him. We need to know Jesus so that we can be nourished by him. He is the vine. We are the branches. We don't live into the vine. We live from the vine. Our nourishment comes from the vine. And so we need to start there. And so as you guys, like, we're getting ready to start a new year. New year's coming, right? Okay, so New Year's resolutions always come out. Like, look, I just want to give you three things that will change your life. Call me Tony Robbins if you want, whatever. But these are like three things that will change your life. I'm quite serious. If you do these three things throughout the next year, it will change your life. You will not be the same. The first one is this. Wait, where we go? Oh, okay. Oh, I did, I did say I have a slide there. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, you and I need to be connected to the vine so we can live from the vine. There you go. All right. So how do we do that? Again, here's the three things that will change your life. Maybe. First one. Read your Bible. Read your Bible and study your Bible. You go, oh, well, no kidding. Okay. We'll do it. <laughs> Don't just talk about it. Be about it. Do it. Make a commitment. Actually do it. I mean, like, I understand that's like the, the Sunday school answer of like, you know, when the teacher asks a question, just say Jesus, right? Like, what's something that'll change my life? Read your Bible. Okay. But seriously, I understand like sometimes life is busy and it's like easier said than done, right? Make a commitment. Do it. It will change your life. I'm, I'm not like, that's not hyperbole. Because in that, in God's word, we find the words of life that will change us. Read your Bible. But don't just read your Bible too. Study your Bible. And if you need help finding resources and things to study your Bible, I will happily give you a thousand different books you can read. Maybe not a thousand. That, that was hyperbole. But I'll give you, I'll give you a bunch of books. I, I can give you book ideas to help you study, commentaries if you want to like go really in depth into a book. I, I'm happy to recommend resources. I'm happy to sit with you and walk through it with you. I, you know what? Forget the resources. Let me do that. It would, nothing would make me happier. I will do that with you. Study your Bible. Read your Bible. Second one, if you thought this one was obvious, pray. Again, you know, talking about we don't live into the vine. We live from the vine. We find our nourishment from God. How do we be connected to the vine? We know who he is and we speak to him. We pray. And I think prayer, again, it's not just asking God for things. It's, it's confessing when we've failed. When we, it's, it's adoring. It's like a loving relationship, right? When I screw up, I say, I'm sorry to my wife. I talk to her. I say, look, I will, I'm going to do my best to change. I don't just forget it ever happened or something like that. I go to her and I say, look, here's something I've done. It's wrong. I apologize. I'm going to do my best not to do it again. Like, and I need your help. Like, help me. You know, like, like, now, 
take that and, and elevate it to a relationship with God, right? It's, it's, it's a personal thing. I confess. I think we see sometimes because our view in movies or maybe like our religious background like gets in the way, like we think of confession as this thing like, you know, like hang my head in shame and like, you know, like God's going to backhand me with a bunch of penance and like, and all of that, right? Like, but like think of it more relationally. This says, what do we do in a healthy, good relationship? When we screw up, we, we own it. And we ask the other person, say, look, I'm sorry, help. Like, let's work together. And again, like, Emmanuel, God with us. He wants to help. So confession, adoration. It's like any relationship as well, too. Like, when we appreciate somebody else, we let them know. We see that throughout the Psalms, all of these things, confession, adoration, Petition is a part of it, right? Coming to God with the things that matter to us because the things that matter to us matter to God. We let him know how we feel. Prayer is a place to be honest, not a place to be good, right? We've said that a thousand times and I'll say, and that's not, that again, not hyperbole. I've probably said that a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand times more because it's an important thing to remember and listening. And that's really the third one, listening. Learning to listen. To take time in silence and solitude in a world that buzzes with busyness, constantly keeping us busy from here to there, from all of these things that were supposed to revolutionize our life that really just make us busier, right? I mean, you think about the smartphone, right? It was supposed to change our lives and make everything so much easier. And sure, it makes some things easier but it also makes us constantly available. It makes us constantly connected. Like, you know, like there's all of these things where it's like, it's learning to say, I'm gonna put it down. I'm gonna have some silence and solitude. And as an extrovert, that's not like, you know, it's not like one of those, like I'm a super introverted person. So, you know, like this is the easiest thing in the world. Like this is my wheelhouse. Like it's not, but I've seen the importance of silence and solitude and learning to listen. And so quite honestly, I truly believe if in the new year you do these three things, when we come to December next year, you will not be the same person. And I mean that in the best possible way. You will be a better version of yourself than you are right now. Those three things. Look, there's lots of other things we could be doing, but start there. Start there. And if you're already doing these three things, maybe try and do it a little longer. I don't know or keep it up. I encourage you, keep doing it, you know, like, and, uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're, that's, that was kind of the end. I wanted to talk about very practically moving from just saying like, hey, you need to know Jesus to saying like, how do we do that? How do we do that? So yeah, these three things. So now what we're going to do is we're going to come to a time of communion. And when we take communion, we are reminded that Jesus is God with us. I think communion is one of these beautiful visualizations, like tangible things that remind us that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that he was with us.